0: What we're doing next week is a secret. You'll have to come back, won't you? Sometimes that's a euphemism to say, I don't know what we're going to do next week. Uh, but this time it actually isn't. So uh, uh, a new series that will take us in through Easter and, uh, uh, and on beyond towards uh, Ascension and Pentecost and all of that jazz. I want to help us this morning to put the joy and the thanksgiving back into giving if indeed it has fallen out of our giving or we've lost the focus of it some way, somehow, it's probably not that our giving... And when I talk about giving this morning, I'm not talking um, about money. I'm talking about all our giving, which obviously does include money, but just our, our giving, uh, the generosity of our lives. I guess it's easy to uh, to be passive in our giving and in our generosity. Maybe more so with money, we can become quite passive. It happens uh, automatically without much effort. Uh, And I was arguing a couple of Sundays ago that that's a good thing, but it can also have a flip side of of it not really engaging our hearts. And and even some of the giving that we do in terms of our time, our talents, our energies, it is a habit, a routine, and so we can be uh, perhaps a little passive about it. We We fail to see the significance of it have the joy and the thanksgiving perhaps that should be attached to it. In the middle of that passage that Margaret beautifully read to us, it says these words, Excel in the grace of giving. Just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of of giving it was that phrase grace of giving that caught my attention it's not make sure that you excel in the amount of giving or in the frequency of giving or excel even in the gift itself by whatever measure that might be but be sure that you excel in the grace of giving an attitude, a spirit. In other words, it's a matter of the heart. That the quality of our gift is directly related to what's going on in our heart, whatever that gift might be. And 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9 are both about giving and gifts. And in chapter 9 verse 7 it it kind of focuses us right in each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. It's a heart matter. And therefore because it's a matter of the heart you're not in any way doing it reluctantly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful or quite literally and hilarious giver. Now that word can go two ways in English, can't it? Our giving can be hilarious for all the wrong reasons. But uh, a cheerful, a kind of extravagant, exuberant kind of giver. More than that, these two chapters are peppered with references to the spirit of cheerfulness or the attitude of joy in terms of how we give. So how do we give like that? How do we make sure that at best our giving isn't passive, and at worst, we're not doing it out of some kind of duty or begrudgingly in a way where our heart is disconnected from uh, the action. I think the biggest clue is right in the middle of those verses that uh, Margaret read in chapter 8, and you can find it there at verse 9. For you know the grace for you know the grace, that's where it begins and where it ends. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes became poor, so that through His poverty uh, so that you through his poverty might become rich. All giving is measured or compared with this God's greatest. Gift. If we're to excel in the grace of giving, if it's to be a matter of the heart, it's also going to have to be a matter of perspective. You can't think about giving as a Christian from any other vantage point or through any other filter or standing on any other foundation other than the gift. That has been bestowed on us. The gift that has been bestowed on us is the light that shines, that illuminates all our gifts and all our giving. A matter of perspective. Or as the verse itself says, it's a matter of what you know. Does your gift come out of the knowledge, the reality of the grace? of our Lord Jesus Christ? Have you ever known something in your head, but not in your heart? The knows, K-N-O-W, of the Bible, have a knowing about them. They're rich, the kind of culture in which the Bible was written tends not to separate, although Greek culture did, to be fair. But Hebrew and Jewish culture tended not at all to separate mind, body, and spirit. So, so to know something, when it says in Genesis, Adam knew Eve, it talks about a complete knowing, a complete oneness. So do you know the grace? of our Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know that in your heart, in your life, in your experience, at 11.32 and 45 seconds, on this Sunday the 8th of March, do you know it in your heart? Or to ask a different question, what do you feel about that? Feel? Never felt anything, some people. Feel, what would you feel about the grace of our Lord Jesus this morning? It's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of perspective. It's a matter of what you know. Let's dig here in this verse for our time this morning. Do you know the grace? Do you know God's generosity in your life? I'm not asking whether you know that you think you should know, or whether you know that you ought to know, but know that you don't. Do do you know God's generosity? This morning, today, do you know the overwhelming, all-encompassing goodness, Father, tender Father-heartedness, generosity of a God who says, how will a father not give the best gifts that he has to his children do you know the grace if we step off into giving whether it be money time talents gifts emotion anything else if we step off from a different vantage point if we step off from a different stepping stone to knowing the grace then our giving becomes something god never intended it to be it becomes about duty or seeking to earn God's favor or approval, or seeking in somehow to put ourselves right with God, or in some other measure to make amends, and it becomes all the religious nonsense to which the gospel calls us out of hallelujah. Let's break it down for a moment. Do you know? Do you know that he was rich and still is? He had everything. And now back restored, Jesus came down to earth, lived, died, was buried, rose again, sent it back up to heaven to the right hand of the Father. Everything is his. Think about it for a moment. Everything belongs to him. Think of the most randomest of objects you can think of to illustrate the point. The aardvark belongs to him. George Foreman Grills belongs to him. Think of something. Come on. Your socks belong to him. And Debbie wishes he would take them if they belong to him. Sometimes people sing a song and they say, the Lord has given me this song, and do you understand why the Lord gave it away? The pillow on your bed. The clothes on your back. The wood that you're sitting on. What a great idea that was. Let's put benches in church. That'll keep them awake. It's all his. Every single bit of it belongs to him. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Sorry, my computer's catching up. Here we go. And everything in it. And not only is the the earth his and everything in it, Paul writes about this God uh, whose son Jesus has been uh, ascended again back up into the heavenly places. And there in that heavenly place, Jesus who has everything, Paul says, Never forget that my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Everything is his, and the promise is to meet all of our needs. He is the provider, not us and even in our own lives it's a change in emphasis for us to learn to be dependent on him rather than on ourselves generally we've been taught implicitly and perhaps explicitly that we have to look after ourselves because no one else will so we inhabit a culture that reinforces that I am the provider of my own needs. That's not true. God is the one who provides. He is the one ultimately in whom I must learn to trust, otherwise I end up learning to trust in my own provision. That takes me around a vicious circle of never being sure I've got enough to trust in my own provision. If I had a little bit more, I'd feel more satisfied and more secure. And when I have a little bit more, well, if I had a little bit more again, I'll feel more satisfied and secure. So I go around that loop a second time, a third time, a fourth time, a fifth time, all the way, and you get to the top of the ladder and realize that there's nothing there. And that every stage up the ladder, you, you live with the same level of, of insecurity. The reason we're insecure is that we think it depends on us, and it doesn't. And nowhere in the Scriptures in that sense, does it say that it should? That's not in any way to take away our sense of responsibility. He will supply all of our needs and he is rich. He is rich. I have no need, says God, of a bull from your store or of goats from your pens. It's clearly language locked in a particular culture, isn't it? unless you've got bulls and pens. For every animal of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills is mine. It's a bit like God saying, yeah, I own all the oil. All the stuff that makes money, all the things that gives people power. You know all that oil? Hey, that's mine. Never forget, that's mine. And every bird in the mountains, and the insects in the field are mine. And George Foreman grills are mine. Do you know that he's rich and still is? Like super rich? Like off the Sunday Times list rich? Do you know how poor he became? Do you know how poor he became? These verses in Philippians that sometimes we read, Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 and following, are probably the earliest words that were ever written down about the Christian faith. Written down before the gospel stories were told. Uh, the, a very early hymn, more than likely, that the earliest Christians sang. About Jesus who emptied himself. The ESV uses that word that uh, uh, Wesley uses in his hymn, and Can It Be? Emptied himself. Of all but love. A shrinking down. Do you know how poor he became? Not not that he became a man, although that's bad enough. Not, Not even really that it was a stable. Or that he only had one robe. That he never owned a home, never really had a place that he could call his own. And those are good things to reflect upon, I think, from time to time. He was the most influential man, the most successful man that ever lived. But Jesus didn't have a clean shirt to put on his back for an evening out. Didn't have one. And it awakens in us the reality of what we need to be influential and to live a significant life and to be successful. But that's not the real poverty If we go on to look, he humbled himself further, even to the point of death, death on a cross. The poverty of which this earliest hymn would speak about is that Jesus himself would die the death, not only of a common criminal, but die the death that has been undisputedly the most agonizing, the most depraved kind of execution that human beings have ever invented. It was so grotesque. That even the Romans themselves outlawed it uh, a few centuries after Jesus himself was crucified. You died from asphyxiation, And sometimes the naked bodies of men hanging on crosses would hang for days. Often at eye level so that they would be able to look into the eyes of those that would taunt them and accuse them. They would lift themselves up where they were pinned in the most sensitive parts of their body in order to get a gasp of air and then their bodies would slump again. And sometimes naked they would hang for days. All they could do against their tormentors would be to uh, scream out. The air would be black and blue, as some early crucifixions are described. Human excrement all over the floor. And sometimes naked men would hang there for days. That's the poverty to which he came. That's the place to which Jesus himself entered. And yet, there's something more. Something more than what Isaiah describes as Jesus facing that scourging and that crucifixion that meant he was so disfigured, you could barely recognize that he was a man. The Bible talks about something else going on. A a richer, if this not be a mix of metaphors, a richer, deeper poverty. A poorer poverty, perhaps is a better way of expressing it. So much more than the crucifixion, the Bible teaches us that Jesus would carry the weight, the judgments, the the punishments, the pain, the, the consequences. The fruit of this world's, our wickedness. So much more that we would be able to read, he became sin for us. Only after hanging for six hours in the darkness, in that agony with the weight of the world wrapped around him. Every lie, every lust, every cheat, every adultery, every greed, every wrong word, bad word, hurtful word. In those moments, in addition to the physical, it's all Jesus can feel now. And he's terribly alone. And he cries out in the darkness My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the first time ever, Jesus is utterly alone. Sure, he's been alone before, perhaps on a hillside or praying through the night or awaking early in the morning. But never like this. His Father was always with him, embracing him through the darkness of a prayer-filled night. Greeting him in the whisper of the stillness of the dawn. But this, not this, never this. It's what Jesus had feared the most. It's the pain so much deeper than the nails, the agony so much greater than the alone. Father, where are you? Where, where are you? Who, who am I? I? I've lost all my identity. I've lost all my bearings. I've lost all the sense of who I am. Without you, I am nothing. Who am I? Where am I? The despair. No wonder the darkness engulfed the sky. For the two that had always been one were now two. Jesus always with God, now without Him. The Trinity somehow had been wrenched apart and dismantled. The unity of God dissolved. The heart of God literally ripped open, poured out. Do you know the grace, the poverty to which Jesus went? Do you know? It's all way too familiar, isn't it? Way too comfortable. Way too easy to speak. Barely a second thought about the cross. We were led so helpfully in our worship this morning. About it all begins there at the cross. But so easy for it to be here. So easy for me to hardly give it a second thought. To be so comfortable with the king of the universe. There in the utmost of poverty. That I can be untouched. Unmoved. Unchanged. So, So amazing that we should in any way be comfortable. That the son of God should come to earth. And that's what we did to him. Do you know the poverty? And do you know how rich you are? Do you know how rich you are? Do you know really how rich you are? But everything that Jesus lost in those moments has been given to you and to me in Jesus Christ that the relationship that he lost has been restored to us. That the identity that he lost has been given to us. The Son of God became the Son of Man, that sons of men might become sons of God. The punishment that he experienced has been lifted from me. He became guilty that I might never be. Do you know how rich you are? Jesus told a story to try and help people understand how rich they'd become. Uh, and he said, it's like this. He said, imagine if you found, if you found it. You found what you have now got. You found the hidden treasure, the pearl of greatest price. The trouble is, it's buried in the middle of a field. And that field doesn't belong to you. What will you do? Jesus says, well, this is what you will do. You will sell all that you have, if that's what it takes, in order to buy the field, knowing that in that field there is everything you absolutely need. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And Then in his joy went and sold all he had. Now that's an oxymoron in Western culture. With joy, he sold all that he had. Because of what he found. Something that you would trade for everything has been given to you and to me. Something that if we have it, it does not matter if we have nothing else on earth. Because we have this one thing. Namely, to be a child, a son, or a daughter of the living God. Behold what extravagant love, 1 John 3 verse 1 or 2, the Father has lavished, poured out, saturated us with, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. So, if I have him... And he has everything, and if he has given everything for me that I might have everything that I will ever need, and if what I've now got is worth giving everything I have away for, then giving's a piece of cake, isn't it? It's just it's just mucking about with a couple of compared to the whole thing. I can give freely, I can give abundantly, I can give full of grace because God provides. Because he looks after me. Because in him I've got everything that I want. And all that I need. Giving becomes a delight, a a pleasure, a freedom, a grace, abundant, generous. And it's the one thing that the Bible says, come on, test me, God says. See if this isn't true. See that if you'll learn to, to give generously, open-heartedly, see that, that I will not show you that you are more blessed than you might ever imagine. See if I will not show you that the, all the storehouses of your life will be full because I am the doorkeeper of those storehouses. Test me. Dare we? Dare we test him? So giving becomes a joy because it celebrates all that God has done for us. We give freely of our time, our emotion, our energy. We give full of thankfulness because we know when it all comes down to it, God will provide for all I need anyway. When someone says, can I borrow that? Your first thought is, I might need it. (laughs) Your second thought is, "Ah, but it's mine. Neither of those things are true, are they? Really. If God will provide all you need, you might not need it, and it's not yours anyway. The lawnmower, that belongs to God. Whatever. It's all His. And so as we saturate ourselves in the grace, so our giving becomes everything that it can be. It's not about the amount. It's about the heart. As I saturate myself in in all that God is, all that he's given me, all that my life is in him, so my heart towards this whole thing changes. So grace wells up in me. And suddenly when someone says, do you excel in the grace of giving? And you go, well, I'm not sure I excel yet, but I get what you're on about. I get how I can live with extravagant and abundant grace because I've experienced that grace in measure beyond my wildest dreams. And so the boy gave his loaves and his fish. How did he give them? Bet he was a bit annoyed, to be honest. I'm the only one out of all you lot that brought their lunch, it's mine. Fair play. You might have given half of it away if you're feeling really generous. It's an amazing story. Not just because of what the boy did, but because of what God did in response. The widow who, who pops in, how much did she give? Might. And, and what was that compared to what she had? Everything that she had. Is she mad? What's the matter with the woman? Or has she discovered something that is so counter our culture and so amazingly beautiful that Jesus would say, in the midst of all the church gathering around, that's it. That's it. That's the gospel. That's the grace. That's the person that's got it. Because it's all mine. And am I not the God that cares for the widows and the orphans, the marginalized and the oppressed? So, very simply, how generous are you today? How generous? How many areas, or are there areas, in your life where you're not sure yet that you really know the grace of God? There are areas, sure, where, where giving is a grace. But there are other areas where it's, it's hard, it's, it's begrudging, it's difficult. I, I don't feel free and easy. I, I, I don't feel like I'm open-handed. There are areas of my life where I feel more tight-fisted. Maybe you haven't got any areas of your life where you might feel more tight-fisted. But you know what I'm talking about. Imagine it for a friend. If you've never been tight-fisted, imagine that someone somewhere might be feeling that. A little bit of their lives that's closed off to God's grace and it makes them a bit hard hearted, a bit a bit closed in in that area. It keeps our fits tight rather than open. Area of our life where we're still grabbing rather than giving. And what would God say to us in that? I can ask the musicians to come and lead us in, in just a moment. Uh, and we're just going to spend perhaps six, seven minutes using this time to say to God look would you, would you search me and would, would you know me uh, and would you help all the areas of my life to see your grace and your generosity and as I see your grace and I see your generosity and as I see that everything is yours and you have promised to provide for me so I will learn to trust you To trust you without measure, without borders. Because I don't have to keep thinking, I've got to look after number one. If I don't look after myself, no one else will. If I don't care for my family, no one else will. Well, there's a God in heaven who will, who longs to, whose extravagant grace has been made known. And he wants to flood our lives with that grace. Let's stand together as we lift our hearts and open our lives to what Jesus might say to us in these moments.